pre-dropped here, no doubt. Yeah, pre-dropped. Whoa, that thing came out sideways. Drove it into the penalty area. Whoa, yeah. Oh, that was a shank. It's hard to believe watching this. It made an unbelievable bogey in the drop zone. What's up, guys? Dylan DeChair coming to you from Seattle, Washington. It is Sunday evening. It has been a jam-packed golf day, really, starting with Lilia Vu finishing off the major championship season the way she started hers, actually, winning her second major title of the year. God, it's fun to have, well, some people call it coffee golf. I don't really drink coffee, but it's fun to wake up and watch sports. It's fun to wake up and watch Lynx golf specifically. Lilia played awesome. Um, Lucas Glover made some putts, man. Rolled the rock, won his second week in a row. Uh, Cameron Smith won on Live. Gabby Ruffles won on the Epson Tour. The Women's Am at Bel Air is just finishing up right now. But we're not really going to get into any of that today. Uh, next week, we'll be back to regularly scheduled programming. But this week, wanted to do something a little bit different because... Brandel Chambly, we got some time with Brandel for the latest issue of Golf Magazine, got to sit down. It was originally just pitched as a Q&A. Um, it's funny, for these these Q&As that I'll do for the magazine, most issues, um, a lot of the time, the bare minimum you need is about 12 minutes. 12 minutes of audio translates to the required Q&A section for the page. This was a longer Q&A in the magazine. So, you know, you probably minimum need, you probably want 30 minutes just to be safe in case there's some questions that just, you know, turn out to be duds. Um, with Brandel Chambly, maybe you have 30 minutes worth of questions, but he ends up giving you like over 100 minutes of answers. So we have a two-part Brandel Shambly podcast, the man behind the reputation. It's, it always blows my mind how everyone in golf seems to have an opinion on Brandel. And uh, so I wanted to get to the bottom of it a little bit. So this is now a two-part podcast. It will also be available in text form on the golfing internet at golf.com. Uh, I should note, actually, this was pre-playoffs this was over a month ago now so if there are no references to uh, this was right before the open championship so if uh, if any details don't quite line up timeliness wise that's why part one is really just getting into the origin story of Brandel Chambly and how he goes about his business and then on Wednesday we'll have the second part which is Brandel talking current events where was he when he found out about the live deal how does he see this world developing, I guess. What does he really think of Phil Mickelson? All that good stuff. Um, that will pop into your feet on Wednesday. So if you like this first part, whatever you think of Brandel, consider giving a little, hit that subscribe button so the next uh, next edition of the Drop Zone will pop right into your feed. But without further ado, here's Brandel Shambly talking about evil Knievel, talking about his childhood, talking about trying to debate his father, Little details that will help make sense of the man he is now, starting from a very young age. You will hear a lot more of Brandel than you will of me. Um, hopefully, you like that. See you on the other side. All right, we are here at Greyhawk with Mr. Brandel Chambly. I wanted to touch on a couple, uh, I guess, origin points and then turning points 
in your, your life and career. So the logical place to, would be to start at the beginning. Um, you were born in St. Louis, is that right? I was, yeah. But you grew up in Texas. Um, what were you like as a kid, and, and how does that relate to what you're like now? Were you always the guy you are right now? I don't know. I think we all evolve. I was a, a very athletic kid. You know, whatever I was watching on TV, I wanted to do professionally, whether it was, you know, I grew up having moved to Texas pretty young, but I grew up in Irving, Texas, which at the time was the home of the Dallas Cowboys. And I would argue, even with ardent New England fans, that the greatest decade in the history of football was the Dallas Cowboys in the 70s. And, and you know, I was, you know, in Texas, you play football, you play, you know, you play baseball, uh, you run track. Uh, but I, I was, you know, I was pretty fast. So I played running back and I wanted to be, you know, Walt Garrison. I wanted to be Tony Dorsett. Uh, and I can remember the turning point with that particular aspiration was when I was about 13 and I was going up against what we called the headhunter defense. They had stickers for every solo tackle they had made on their helmets. And all I saw was just helmets covered in stickers. <laughs> and I was not a big kid, shocker. And, uh, but I was fast and I was, the next thing I know, the whole defense, it seemed like ended up on top of me. And I was on top of the golf ball, which, or the golf ball, top of the football, <laughs> top of the football and it lengthwise, you know, oh. and it was right in my sternum. And I remember laying at the bottom of that huddle, if you want to call it that pile, that, that yeah. pile, that mass of, of crazed out young kids thinking, I am never playing football again. And then uh, I remember winning our district in various track meets and going to regionals. And I just got creamed at regionals. And we came out of there and my dad put his arm around me and he was like, I think we need to find you another sport. Uh, and that was uh, riding horses. You know, I grew up, we had horses and I rode them competitively. And, did a lot of stupid things on horses. And then eventually you get hurt doing that. Uh, but no, I just played every sport. I, that's all I did. You know, we'd, we'd get out in the front yard and, you know, it was way before your time, but at that time, Evil Knievel was trying to jump everything. He was trying to jump every canyon or building or cars or whatever it was. So we would try to go out. I can't even imagine letting my kids do this. But back then it was just different. You know, we would set up these ramps and we would get going as fast as we could on the bikes and take off on these ramps. And, you know, we'd try to jump 20 feet and we crashed all day long. I've got scars all over my body from knees and hands and everything. Uh, and I, I cannot imagine letting my kids do something yeah. like that. But we did it all day long. Uh, you know, we'd play pickup football games, uh, you know, our neighborhood against another neighborhood. And, you know, there was always one guy you couldn't tackle. So it was, you know, it was so much pride if you could tackle Mike, Mike Watney was his name. And uh, that's all we did. And my mom would say, you know, come home at dark and, and, and we'd be home at dark. But we just and then when the horses, you know, we just my parents would drop us off at sunup and then they would come get us at sundown. And my brother and I would ride horses everywhere all day, you know, hundreds and hundreds of acres. What now is the TPC at Las Colinas? Uh, it used to be just this 
farm that we rode no horses kidding. on. And then when I was 11, and again, I cannot imagine letting my kids do something like this. But when I was 11, my older brother was 13, we got on our horses, my brother and I, and we set off to ride to Lake Texoma. Now that's a hundred miles. <laughs> and cause we were, we thought it'd be so cool to, to camp out and over a, uh, a fire, you know, campfire, you know, cook, you know, beans and yeah. And, uh, you're an old you know, Western, right. And we would, wherever we would decide to camp out and it was at random, we would take a sign and stick it on the road saying we're here. And my parents would drive out at night, find the sign, because we knew it, and they would, you know, check on us. But I think the third night into that trip, it, we hadn't planned on thunderstorms. So it started lightning yep. and storming. And every lightning cra crash, my brother's horse would run off. Oh, no. So my brother, ingenious that he was, decided he would stop that and tied, tied the horse to his leg and... A, a bolt. All I remember is seeing my brother, you know, flying up, you know, with the light from the from the lightning, and I thought, you know, that's when I knew he was going to be a world class, kick ass lawyer. You know, I was like, yeah, you brilliant, Bill. Uh, how he didn't die, I I, I don't know, but uh, but yeah, we were always we were always doing crazy stuff. So, I mean, my brother and I would be in the backyard trying to throw knives uh, at each other, and how close we could get without killing each other. Uh, we would uh, go out in fields and, and shoot uh, with BB guns, anything that flew. And then invariably we'd take to sh trying to sneak up on each other and shoot each other in the ass. Um, we were ridiculous boys. That's what we did. And it was a tremendous way to grow up. What were your parents like? They support you in your, yeah, they're the in best. your ridiculousness? I mean, I know, uh, you know, you're very fortunate if you've got great parents. And I, I think I had the best parents in the world. You know, they're, they're still alive. Uh, my dad's 88. Uh, my mom is 82. And they're still alive. They've still got their wits about them. They're still active. You know, they, they you know, I have five brothers and sisters. So, you know, darn near 20 grandkids. But uh, my dad mostly just worked because that's a lot of mouths to feed, a lot of kids to put through college. You know, he bought everybody a car when we graduated from high school. He bought everybody a car when they graduated from college. He sent everybody to college. He paid for everybody's college. He paid for my golf. He paid for graduate schools, business schools, law schools, medical schools, dental schools. He paid for all that. Uh, and I don't know how he did it because he wasn't rich. He just worked his ass off. He just worked. He would leave at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning. I don't know that he got home till 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night. And... On the weekends, he was home, and he would cook steaks every Saturday night for pretty much everybody in the neighborhood. And on Sundays, he would hold court with everybody in the neighborhood. And he loved to debate, loved to argue, and so did everybody else in my family. So we'd just sit around and all try to beat my father at debates, which was impossible. Uh, you know, and, but it was a great way to grow up. And my mom, all she did was just take care of everybody. You know, she... She took care of the house. She got everybody to school. She picked everybody up, took them to their extracurricular activities and never missed a beat, never complained. Um, had meals on the plate, made sure everybody did their homework. Everybody got in bed, did the laundry, kept the house clean. Uh, she was a soft spot to land. Sweetest thing in the world uh, and still is. Uh, so I, I cannot imagine two, two better parents. You know, my dad still, he'll send me, 
you know, I'll come home after a couple of weeks, I'll have a packet. And in that packet will be letters, clippings from, my dad doesn't know that you can get newspapers digitally online. So right. he still reads them. He still cuts out clippings about golf that he thinks might inform my opinion. Uh, he'll highlight them, he'll staple them together and long detailed notes. No kidding. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, send cards and letters and yeah, he's still very much. Do you read them? Do you ever get anything out of them? Yeah, I do. You know, I get more out of his notes and thoughts. You know, he's a, he's a, you know, you're lucky if you, you know, I still call my dad to talk to him about things, you know, what would you do about this? What would you do about that? What do you think about this? And, you know, I've got kids that, you know, now they're 26, 21 and 20, but you never stop worrying about your kids. And, you know, I call my dad about some, something I'm thinking about with my kids. You never stop thinking about them. And my dad, you know, he's always like that, you know, raising, I don't understand your generation. It's not hard to raise kids. Kids need two things. They need love and discipline. That's all they need, the love and discipline. Yeah. And uh, I'm like, okay, right, uh, <laughs> sure. Say, so give them a bike and a backyard and a bunch of things to jump over. Yeah, I mean, fine. I think, yeah. I mean, yeah. Every generation looks at the current, you know, you, you kind of look at the current generation from the view of your past one and you think, ah, oh, this one's lost its mind or whatever. But, uh, but that was not a bad way to grow up. You know, it was, you know, get out of the house. Uh, rough and tumble play is very important to growing up. And, uh, you know, that's, there's a lot of evidence in that. There's a lot of literature on that. And, and, and I think this era is, is missing rough and tumble play. Uh, we're on our devices too much. Where'd golf fit into any of this? Golf uh, fit into it because I took a, a, a high school friend of mine out to ride horses one day. And he said, okay, you gotta come play golf with me. And my dad had taken me to play golf when I was, I don't know, six, seven. I still remember a par three course right outside of Dallas, but it didn't take. Uh, so my buddy asked me if I wanted to go play golf with him. And he was a very good golfer, one of the best in the nation. I didn't know that. His name was Billy Beverly, hell of a player. Uh, and so I came home and told my dad, look, I love, I love it. I, I think I could be good at this. Yeah. Yeah. First time I played, I shot 180. I don't even know what I shot, but I love it. And he was like, okay. He's like, if you, if you really want to play golf, then we're going to have to sell the horses because you can't do both. And so I was like, okay. So we sold my horse and I started playing and practicing. I was 13, right before my 13th birthday. And, uh, and then shortly thereafter, pretty much quit every other sport and just dove into golf. And I, you know, my dad said to me, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take you at any hour you want. And I would wake up at 4.30 and knock on his door and he'd take me to the golf course so that I'd be there right when the sun came up in the summer. And they'd pick me up when the sun went down, uh, just like what we used to do with horses. And I just fell in love with it. And I was lucky that I grew up in an area where there were so many great junior golfers. You know, I, I counted it and it, it was like a dozen from my era uh, in Dallas, Fort Worth area that made it to the tour. You know, but you know, the, the most obvious are, you know, like Andrew McGee, Scott Verplank, Mark Brooks, you know, there are many others not far from there, Andy Dillard. These are all people that I grew up, you know, playing golf with. And, you know, they were shooting 67, 66 in high school tournaments, 68. 
And, you know, when I first started playing, it was like right before I went into high school. And I can remember being nervous about trying out for the high school team because everybody was so darn good. And my dad, you know, again, he, he was like, you know, don't worry about it. Don't sweat it. If you don't make it, we'll put together a schedule. You'll go play junior golf tournaments. We'll figure it out. And I, you know, I think I shot 90 or something and made the high school team. But, uh, but you know, being around all those great junior golfers was, was motivating. And I got very good very fast, you know. Uh, I'd say by my sophomore year in high school, I was, I was good. I was shooting in the low 70s. Uh, and then, you know, I got really, I, you know, I got way better my junior year and way better my senior year such that I was able to get a scholarship to the University of Texas. Uh, and that was it. It set me on the, the path. I'm always interested by people that, you know, weren't top golfers from eight, nine, ten years old, which seems like it's true a lot of the case. Like, do you ever talk to, I'm sure people ask you all the time, oh, how should I make my kid into a superstar golfer? Is there anything that you've learned from your upbringing and now your professional career and, and now your career as a talker and observer about how golf parents should approach that? Yeah, you know, I have mixed emotions about it because I see the parents, the helicopter parents that have had success with their kids and they've, they've, they've turned into extraordinary golfers. Uh, and it looks like, you know, they're all trying to copy, you know, Tiger Woods, but, you know, what I could glean from reading everything I have about Earl and Tiger's relationship was that it was founded on a great respect for one another and that the, the desire for Tiger to play golf came from Tiger, not from Earl. Like Tiger wanted to hit golf balls. Tiger wanted to be out there all day long. It wasn't Earl pushing it on him in any way. I mean, he exposed him to it, but it lit a fire in him and it was Tiger's passion. So, you know, when I've talked to juniors you know, and, and their parents are in the room, I, I say the same thing is, uh, you know, look around you, look who's around you right now, look who's supporting you. Uh, and if you are lucky enough to get really good at this game, just don't ever lose sight of that because the better you get, the more people are gonna wanna come in and hitch their wagon to your star and usurp your stardom. And more times than not, they're going to damage you uh, because you develop motor patterns when you're very young. And yeah, we do hear about Tiger Woods. We hear about the successful ones. You know, Tiger, you know, learning from Rudy Duran and then going to Butch and going to, to Haney and then going to Foley and then going to Como. And we hear about all those and we think, well, it's okay to sort of hop around all these teachers and I would just say look we only hear about the successful ones well we for every great teacher player change there's scores if not hundreds that don't make it and and they don't make it because I think it disrupts the motor patterns that kids develop as juniors so uh, you know if, if somebody's gonna make it in professional golf there there really is no secret you know it's they all have talent, that's a given. I, I grew up with hundreds of junior golfers in my area. They, you know, most of them were talented. The ones that make it, and they're the ones that just persevere. They're the ones that work the hardest. 
there are some that don't make it that are work that work very hard, but I would argue that they get their path deviated by instruction, and it's not a that's not a knock on instruction. I I'm instruction is vastly improved over the last five ten years, and I'm, there's it's never with ill intent that that happens, but instruction is still guessing to some extent. It's lucky that Jack Nicholas ended up in a place with Jack Grout. Just by chance did Jack end up with Jack Grout. If, if Jack would have ended up under the tutelage of Jack Graham, just pulling a fictional name out of the yeah. ether, uh, Jack would probably be a pharmacist. You know, in those particular situations, it worked out. I mean, that was such great historical serendipity. If you realize who Jack Grout was and his path to being at Scioto, you realize that, well, I mean, that's some of the greatest instruction in the history of instruction, which, you know, derives from Alex Morrison, which led to... Uh, Henry Picard, which led to Ben Hogan, which led to Jack Nicholas. I mean, it had this great lineage. So that was tremendous fortune on Jack's part that he happened to have been born there. For the most part, though, your director of golf at your home club is easily good enough to foster uh, and bridge that gap between the frustrating part of starting the game and finding the love of it because it's, it's, it's enjoyable. And then, then it's up to the young man or woman. Because it's up to them. Do they have the passion? They, of course, have to have supportive parents, but um, it's up to them. It's perseverance that gets you to the tour, not talent. You have to have talent, but it's perseverance that gets you there. I, I wasn't Fred Couples. I wasn't Jack Nicholas. I wasn't Tiger Woods. I wasn't Roy McElroy. I, wasn't blessed with that kind of athleticism. I had, I was a good athlete, a very good athlete, but I wasn't, those are once in a generation athletes, but I, I, they didn't outwork me. I, I had the work ethic. Nobody was gonna outwork me. What was the peak of your playing career? Is there a moment where you were just absolutely playing your best golf? Yeah, probably in college, 1983. Um, you know, I, you know, I was, ranked in the top five uh, amateurs. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a first team All-American. I won quite a few tournaments. Uh, I hit the ball very far and very high. And, and I, I say this because once I got to a spot where you know, I got a lot of attention, was winning a lot of tournaments, I'm unfortunately, or fortunately, depending upon your view, very curious too. And so all of a sudden I had a lot of instructors following me. I, up to that point I had zero instruction. None at all? None, okay. zero. I just watched, read, and emulated, and imitated, and dug it out of the dirt. But you know, I started listening to, because they were watching me hit golf balls, instructors. And you know, I, I don't know that I was, and I, tried it and the next thing you know uh, it's kind of hard to find your way back home and so I spent the next I played professional golf from 1985 till I started doing television I mean I still technically am a professional golfer but 
everybody in this room makes more money playing professional golf than I do. Um, I, I, you know, I played for 20 years roughly as a professional golfer, but I don't think I was ever as good as I was when I was in college. Um, you know, I, my best year on tour, I think I finished 37th on the money list. And I, you know, I'd gotten better every single year up to that point when I started playing the tour from 88 on. Um, and yeah, but you know, if I had it to do over again, um, of course I wouldn't listen, but, but you don't get to make those choices again. Uh, you know, everything, that's the reason I'm sitting here now is because I think the curiosity and you know, my love of golf, the golf swing, the passion for it, it directed me more towards an analytical role than a professional golfer role. Yeah, were you an outlier on tour in the way you thought about things or in the fact that you really thought about things a lot, period? Well, I don't, you know, from the golf swing aspect of that, you know, there were others who were pretty geeky about the golf swing, uh, for sure, when I played the tour. Uh, Faxon was that way, for sure. Faxon and I probably are in a battle, a lifelong battle to see who can pay for more instruction from teachers. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I've, I've gone through the top 100 list and you know, I, a lot of them I've worked with. But from a philosophical standpoint, you know, perhaps I can remember when I played the tour, you know, I had a, uh, several people that I absolutely loved to play golf with. You know, Brian Henniger was one of them because we talked about the outdoors and riding horses. Um, Colin Montgomery, I loved playing with Colin because we could talk about anything, but traveling, uh, we talked a lot about. And Frank Nabilo, I, I loved playing with Frank because we would talk about politics or philosophy or history or wine or food. Uh, and he was, uh, you know, just, I thought, so bright. Uh, and it's ironic that, you know, I did work with Brian Hinninger in television. I have worked with Colin Montgomery in television, and I spent the better part of my TV career working with Frank Novello. Uh, but I, I so enjoyed all of those, those, uh, those guys, um, because they had something to say, and they, they loved golf, but they also loved life outside of golf. Did you like the lifestyle of a professional golfer, touring pro? Uh, no. No, I didn't. I mean, I liked the competitive aspect of it. I liked the grind. I loved the simplicity of waking up every single morning with it being so crystal clear what you needed to do. Like golfers have that tremendous luxury. You get up every morning, and you're like, I got to be a better long iron player. I got to be a better mid iron yep. player. I gotta, you know, that kind of clarity is stuff that people dream of. And to have such clear distinctions between, uh, you know, to have something so objectively defined who you are or what you can do in the sport is beautiful. But if my father had taken me aside when I was 13, which I don't, nobody did this, but, and I don't, I don't lay fault on them because, but if somebody had taken me aside when I was 13 or 14 and said, look, let's map this out. You're gonna be really good. You're gonna play professional golf. You're gonna be gone two thirds of the time from the people that you love the most, you know, um, you know, you are not going to be able to participate really within your community. You know, you're not going to 
you're not going to be home for dinner. You're going to miss birthdays. You're going to miss celebrations. You're going to miss anniversaries. Uh, and it's going to put a tremendous stress on your, your, your life outside of golf. You know, I, I probably would have gone into something else. You know, I can, you know, I, I loved, like I said, I loved the competitive aspect of golf. But if I had it to do over again, if I were in college and it occurred to me how much sacrifice there would be for the payoff, uh, I would not have done it. I would have gone into some other endeavor uh, happily. Then there was a point where you switched from playing to, uh, I mean, I guess when you retired from playing, you stayed within the golf world. Is that something that you knew was going to happen or what was that turning point like? You know, it, family uh, is the reason I went from playing competitive golf to doing TV. I, uh, you know, I, I had a tragedy in my family. I lost a child and, um, you know, it, you, know you, you read any literature on, on that and it's, you know, it's, it's catastrophic to relationships. So, um, you know, I, I came home because I had to solve a lot of, you know, I had to try to mend things. and. Uh, and I thought TV would be a way for me to be home a lot more uh, and to be more present when I was at home. Uh, you know, because even when you play golf for a living, you're gone, you know, two-thirds of the year, you come home and, you know, you're up first thing in the morning, you know, you go to the gym, you practice all day, you, you come home, it, you know, you just, it's still in you. Uh, and, and TV, there's, it's easier to turn it off. And when you're off, you can be off. So that's, you know, that's how the transition really came about, was I really wasn't playing that badly. Uh, I wasn't injured. Uh, and I really, you know, looking back, it's easy to say now, I certainly, I wasn't even old. You know, I was 39, 40. Uh, I'd love to be 39, 40 again. Um, so that's, that's kind of how TV came about. I mean, I, I guess it came about too, because, you know, I, I studied communication in, in college. I was, comfortable in front of people talking. I was, I loved to write, I loved to read. I had been writing for, I don't know, the entire time I played the tour, I either wrote for Golf World, Sports Illustrated, Golf Magazine, I was always writing. Uh, and based upon things I would write, I would get asked to do television or go sit down and do an interview. Uh, and so I knew the people uh, in the television world and I can remember coming in to do the Masters in 2001 uh, at Golf Channel, I had not qualified for the Masters. I almost did, but I just missed it. And um, I remember working that entire week. That was really the first week where I did TV. And I, it was such a team game, you know? I enjoyed that team game aspect of it. Golf is, is the most selfish endeavor I can think of. It's just you and those golf balls. And you answer to nobody. You don't have a boss. Nobody can tell you what to do. Nobody. It's just you and those golf balls. And if you're good at it, you can, you can get very selfish. Uh, and, and here golf was, I had a director and a producer and a gazillion people behind the scenes working graphics and lighting and cameras and you, know, you, you name it. And it was like a family and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the people that I worked with that week. And if it hadn't been for that week, and some of those people that I worked with, I still work with now. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure it would have made the transition easy, but it did.
did you find your voice very quickly because you had sort of dipped your toe in the water in advance of, of going full-time to TV, or did that take some time in development? No, I wouldn't say I did at all. I, I uh, you know, first of all, yeah, I mean, I, I was curious enough at it that I was decent at it, but you don't really even know where to find all the things that you need to find. Yeah to form the opinions that you need to form. So it, it took me two, three, four years to get comfortable because there's nobody really that can tell you how to do TV. You can have producers, directors, they can tell you a million different things. And they did tell you that. And if you have them in your head, it, it's, and they're all well-intended, but if you're trying to think about all those things that people tell you, you know, don't say this, don't say that, don't sit this way, don't sit that way, don't, you know, don't do this, don't do that. You go on the air and if that's in your head, well, you, you can't think, you can't talk. And if you're worried at all about what people are going to think about what you say, you can't talk. You can't think. And, you know, and... Were you worried early on about what people thought? Well, I think, look, I mean, you have I'm to not be, saying right? you're not worried. Yeah. You, you want to say things on TV that are informative and that are true and fair. And if you, you know, if you're aspiring to the, the height of it, it, that are entertaining, that pique people's interest. And so, of course, but I guess when I say worried about what people think, if they're offended by something you say, uh, worrying about that. Because if your goal is to be accurate and fair, well, you just have to keep asking yourself, where's this coming from? What am I doing? What's the goal here? And if you stay true to that, and, and the thing about TV that I, I think I learned, you know, pretty quickly, it's so different from golf in that golf is very objective. You shoot 65, nobody can tell you you're not great. You shoot 75, nobody can tell you you're not terrible. But in TV, it's very subjective. You can finish a show, you think it's great, and somebody thinks it sucked. Yeah. And you finish the show and you think it was awful and someone's like, actually, it was pretty good. And I, you had, I had to come up with my own sort of definition of what I thought was good. And mine was to work as hard as I could, to know the players, to know the course, to know all the questions that might be asked of me, to, 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 to have the overarching theme of the show, and then to, to relax and, and try to be fair. And if I did that at the end of a show, then in my view, it was a successful show. And when I say relax, it means listen. Because if you're just thinking about what you're gonna say, you don't listen, and you know, everybody's guilty of doing that. But the, the, height, the height of TV is when you're comfortable, you've done your research and you relax and you can just listen. And then when you listen, it's more of a conversation. And it's, that's, that's the epitome. That's the best you can aim at. And if I do that, that's, that's a successful show. So, you know, I came to that eventually. It took a while. Hey guys, Dylan here. Quick break from Brandel Chambly and his dulcet tones to tell you about our friends in Maryland. Rise with the tide and play like a pro in Ocean City, Maryland. Choose from 17 world-renowned courses designed by golf legends like Jack Nicklaus, Arthur Hills and Gary Player swing through sweeping vistas at Eagle's Landing, savor the stunning bay views of Lighthouse Sound, or see for yourself why Ocean City Golf Club is considered one of the Mid-Atlantic's 
finest fairways. Whether you're sneaking in a quick round on a family vacation or going all in on a golf getaway, this is the place to be. Ocean City, Maryland, where you don't have to be a legend to play like one. I think you're all legends, to be honest. I really do. Uh, to learn more, visit ococean.com. That's ococean.com to learn more. That's Ocean City, Maryland. Guys, check it out. No time like the present. Back to Brandel. I did want to touch while we have you here on some of your actual golf related preparation. So I had you bring uh, some of your notes here. I was wondering if you could just show me how you do some prep for, uh, for some of these shows, whether it's live from or, or golf central and yeah, it's pretty extensive. You're a lover of the yellow notepad. It, yeah, I am. What's uh, happening on these sheets? Well, you know, when I, when I'm getting ready to cover a golf tournament, I will typically just take the top 50 players in the world that are in the event and then get some sort of data on them, raw data to get my arms around who I think is likely the favorite, mm -hmm. and then try to anticipate questions or concerns about them, and try to write those you know, down, and I'll have five, six, seven pages typically of pretty much every play player questions. But then once the tournament starts, you know, like th these are, and I'll staple them together, this is from, this is from Genesis, this is from WM Phoenix Open, this is from Farmers, and... And are you sitting, in, where are you sitting watching the golf Well, I sit in the, either in the studio, mm -hmm. uh, in a, you know, I have a, a room where I can close the door and got two TV screens, or if I'm at a major or a tournament where we're, you know, we have a live from, then I'm in a trailer uh, in a room, and I usually put headphones on, and, uh, you know, I... I I draw lines here. I'll put the players' names yeah. on, and this is pretty simple stuff. It's like I'll put an O is for a birdie, an X is for a par, a square is for a bogey. But I, I generally write like this is John Rahm. What tournament is this? This is Genesis. So this is the first hole, day four, day four, first yeah. hole. So I wrote three wood. He hit at 302, 192. He missed the green to the right. I'll circle when he hits a great chip. So he had a great chip there. And I go through, you know, every hole he plays, every hole that, you know, all the contenders are playing or the stars are playing that particular week. Tiger wasn't in the mix, but I got Tiger yeah. down here because obviously we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Tiger. And I chart every shot they hit, the yardage they hit. And you know they it. do this on the internet though. They have the, they, they have the shots on the, what it, why do you have to do this by yeah. hand instead of just looking at, you know, shot link? Data? Right, if it's on the internet. So when we come up on the air and it's our job to talk about the shots and dive into them and I have shot sheets in front of me, I want to be, one, I want it handy. And two, if I, if I write it down, I'll remember it. Yeah. For the most part, I'll remember it. So if I'm looking at it, writing it down, uh, and then I, you know, make little notes in here. This is a shot that reminds me of something he did at the farmers, the waste management, and then I'll go look that up and I'll get whatever. But then when we get on the set, I generally have this right in front of me. I'll have the, the shot sheet in front of me. And so if I'm calling the shots and they say, you know, this is his, is this approach shot into 12. I'm like, well, yeah, he had 166 yards and he hit it just inside 28 feet. And he hit a horrible first putt to five feet. Well, what we would be showing maybe is just his putt for bogey or par, sorry. Mm -hmm. and for me to very quickly look down and be able to add some layers to what the viewer is looking at so we don't have to show every shot, because right. we can't. We certainly can't in majors. And so I can quickly add some commentary. And then afterwards, so that I can speak far more specific about 
the nature of the way they played and their game. So if someone says, you know, he's hitting on all cylinders, or even if in an interview he says, I drove it great today. Yeah. Uh, I'll be like, well, I mean, you know, he was 123rd in strokes gain off of the tee. He hit four or 14 fairways. But I, I, having been a golfer, I know it. When you, sometimes you'll say stuff like that, and it makes no sense. What that means is, you know, there are three or four tough tee shots on this course, and I've piped those. You know, I missed a couple in the first cut. Or, and so a missed fairway is not always a miss. They're not all the same. You know, you can miss a fairway by this much, or you can miss it by 40 yards. And I write that down. You know, distance from the edge of the fairway is very important. All those things. And I just, you know, and then, I, you know, as, a, as the week goes on, there's shots. And every night, if I do a show, I'll have to do, we call them breakdowns. But if I'm doing an hour show, I'm typically going to do three breakdowns. And so they can be swing breakdowns, they can be strategy breakdowns, they can be broad view breakdowns, they can be who played the best but didn't get the most out of it, whatever it could be. Uh, and then, you know, you try to get some video with it and some sound with it and some graphic with yeah. it. And try to, generally I'm looking for things that I'm a, I consider myself a core golfer. I'm the guy sitting at home watching yeah. TV. Are your breakdowns ever too ambitious where your team is just like, we can't pull that in time. We <laughs> yeah. don't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Quite often. But there are ways around that now. And so, you know, if I wake up in the morning and I'll start thinking about a breakdown I want to do, because I typically do, I'll get up in the morning and I'm like, all right, how am I going to break this down? Because if I have a show before, you know, pregame, I'm like, I, I, I'm going to come up with something different today. And I realize that it, it's pretty ambitious. Then I will go online and start videotaping stuff myself splice it together and tweet it. And I tweet it not for Twitter, I tweet it because then I could use it on right. TV and I could just have them pull up what I tweet. So, you know, I'll spend an hour or two editing something, yeah. splicing it you together. You do the work yourself. Yeah. And, You're and your then, own producer. Right, and then tweet it. And then once I do that, I can just, because I know exactly, like, like you know, you, I'm sure you know how to, you, you, you capture whatever video is on your phone. I'll capture it sometimes to run it back and forth to, to illustrate a movement of a foot, a knee, a hip, an arm, and where you're trying to toggle the movement to where you can more clearly see the specific detail of what I'm trying to talk about. Sometimes you just toggle it and you can see it. Well, it's tough to do that in a, in a studio, believe it or not, with an editor at home. They're not right. going to toggle it exactly the yeah, way you want yeah, to do yeah. it. So I'll toggle it, capture it, Funny. edit it, split it, tweet it. Now I've got it, and I can use it on TV. As much as I hate social media. Very new school. That it, in combination yeah. with your yellow notepads is pretty good. Did you keep score at baseball games when you were a kid? This is what this <laughs> no, reminds me of. I did not. I did not. I only, you know, look, I, uh, you, know, you, you come through this over time because, you, you know, when you first start doing TV, and you're always looking around to see. I'm always curious how people get to their information. Yeah. You know, when I work with Mike Tirico early on in my career, I'm like, how in the hell does he know and how does he get to his information so quickly? And one, these, these people end up in these jobs because you, know, you look at Jim Nance or Dan Hicks or Mike Tirico or, or, or Rich Lerner, you know, they're there because they make a very difficult job to look easy and they're great and they're smart as hell. But they all still have ways to get to their information. And for me, this was it, you know, it was just, it was, you know, because I have to be very specific about the shots, and I, I've been, I enjoy it, and I don't save them all. I mostly save the majors. Uh, this year I started saving them um, because 
I, you know, often when I'm getting ready for major championships, I will go back in into ShotLink and I will just follow shots and look for shots. And yeah. It's like, why don't I just save them for a year? Yeah. And I can go back. Yeah, it's like a yardage book for a caddy that they yeah. can reference the next year. Do you ever mail it in? Like, what ke what keeps you? Uh, compelled to keep doing this or do you feel like you just wouldn't be able to really do the show the way you do it without this no i don't know no i don't mail it in i try to treat you know if it's thursday at sanderson farm i try to treat it the same as thursday at augusta um you know because you know one i always think you know even at late in the show if we're showing a uh, a video of the four ball semifinal mm -hmm. usga i yeah. think you know somebody worked their ass off to get in that four ball and so, and we're on commercial break, and they say we're going to come out with this video. You know, I will do my dang level best to figure out where they came from, who they are, what their name is, where they're going to go, what they went to school, what their swing looks like, because they deserve it, and because our audience deserves it. And um, you know, I, I no, I don't mail it in. I, on the contrary, I, you know, f fear of failure is 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 real, and. I, you make a fool of yourself all the time doing TV. You, you say things that you wish you hadn't said or in a way you wish you hadn't said them. Uh, you say things that turn out are wrong, but that's never the goal, you know? You just, you don't, you want to be right. And, uh, you know, I don't, I enjoy, I don't take the job lightly. I, you know, I think, you know, we have an audience that tunes in that wants to, that loves golf. And it's unlike other uh, people who watch other sports. You know, you don't watch football and go out and play football. You watch golf and you want to, you, you're going to go play yeah. golf. So you, you're watching it not just to be entertained, but to be informed and to learn. And I'm the same. I'm trying to learn. You know, I'll get up and spend all morning on a pitch shot or a chip shot because I'm also trying to learn. Uh, you know, I, I'll go use it on, you know, I'll go try to see if it works, you know. Um, and no, I mean, we work with some great people and uh, they know golf. You know, if I was on a show and I said uh, John Rahm finished, you know, fourth at the Masters, in my ear, someone would go, no, 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 he finished third. You know, they know yeah. golf. They know it, you know. Uh, you get a, mis you know, you mispronounce a name. You know, they, they are in your ear. They, they know it and they love it and they've got such a respect for it. You know, the, the fellow that I worked with when I, did that first show in 2001 at the Masters. You know, the, the main producer was Eric Saperstein, who's since moved on and, and teaches production in Orlando at Full Sail. Uh, and Eric Rutledge was the director then, and he's moved on and he's directing it, showing, teaching directing at Full Sail in Orlando. But one of them was a fellow by the name of Matt Haggerty and Ben Don and uh, Jeff Fabian. And Haggerty, you know, I don't know exactly what his title is. He oversees all of our live froms. He's still there, and there's nobody on the earth that loves golf more than he does. Nobody. Have you ever met Matt? Have you ever no. run across yeah. Matt? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, he's I, just, I just he's known like by a, reputation. Yeah, yeah. He's like a character out of an Aaron Sorkin, you know, series or something. I mean, he's the most beautifully insane lover of golf, and he's loud, and he's sympathetic, and he's empathetic, and he, I mean, he's just the sweetheart, and then he's crazy about this subject or that and you know his passion for golf is inspiring so you couldn't mail it in because he would know it you know and he'd run through a wall for that guy um rich learner is the same way i mean 
he's crazy about it. Ben Don, who now is in charge of, he used to be producer, now he's in charge of running live golf tournaments, you know, behind all the economics, finances, and the talent. Uh, nobody loves golf more than Ben Don. Nobody. Never met anybody who loves golf more than that guy. Jeff Fabian. Nobody loves that. We got another guy, Alan Robinson. Uh, I call him MOAG because that's an acronym for Master of All Games because you can't beat him at any game, any card game. Uh, if he's a savant, if, if, if I said Bobby Jones finished fifth at the 1927 Open, he would know. No, that's wrong. <laughs> we had a guy that just left. Uh, Golf Channel went to PGA Tour to work for them, Ari Marcus. I mean, you've never met people that know more about golf. He could tell you the shaft that Tiger's hitting in his three wood, the, the, the shaft that's in Rory's putter, the grip he put on, whether it has a reminder in the back. That's how these people know the game. Uh, and that's a wonderful environment to work in. My last thing for you, because then we got to get you off to lunch and our camera guys are going to start falling asleep, but you're like one of the most curious people in golf. From my perspective, that's why you are good at what you do in, in large part is this curiosity. What, I'm sure that the Live and the Saudi and the PGA Tour merger dilemma occupies a lot of your brain space right now, but what else are you thinking about? What else are the puzzles that, that you're trying to solve or the rabbit holes that you're going down or anything that, that you've been focused on right now? Well, there's a lot of things. Um... Uh, for the first time ever, I've seen people get over the chipping yips in golf, and I think that's really cool. Uh, Who, who's gotten over it? Tiger Woods. Yeah. First of all, got over it. Um, I mean, that's, I think that's amazing at what he's done. Victor Hovland, to some extent, has gotten over it. I, don't, I wouldn't call what he has now the yips. Mm -hmm. Before, I would call it the yips. So he's, he's, he's gone from the yips to now being, let's just say, a little worse than average. Uh, I think that's pretty cool. And I, I think that's, that's the era we're in right now, is that instruction can be far more accurate. And the, the recipe for power, it used to be when I was nobody, if you went and tried to chase power, people lost their games. Now they know how to chase it, mm -hmm. they know how to find it. Uh, it's not that the equipment has improved over the last 20 years, because the line in the sand was drawn in 2003. It's just that people now know how to get longer. Uh, and then I think, you know, I, I would love to. I've, I've tried to build this course myself in South Texas, and that deal went through, but I, I'm still trying to build it. I haven't done it. doesn't matter whether I build it or not, but I think it would be great for the LPGA and the women's game if there were the equivalent of the TPC LPGA because golf courses are never designed with women in mind. They're designed for the best male players if they're designed for professional golf. And... That means all of the fairway widths and bunker depths and green angles are designed for the best players and their trajectories and angles of descent. And you see this in places like when the Augusta National Women Amateur is played at uh, Augusta, obviously, and women drive it in that left bunker. That bunker was designed for the most powerful men on the planet, the best golfers, so that they can hit an eight iron out of there or seven iron and get it up over that lip and on right. the green. So it becomes a bunker that's built for a different golfer. Uh, it shouldn't be near that deep if, if, you know, if it's designed for the best women players. You know, they're having to come out of there with, because there's a roughly a 
94, 14, there's roughly a 20 mile an hour difference in club head speed. So that bunker shouldn't be as deep so that they could get a five iron out of it and on the green. So imagine if there was such a thing as a TPC LPGA designed with the bunkers in the right places, with the greens designed in the right way, and to put women on the best possible stage to bring the best, most exciting golf out of them and call it the TPC LPGA Championship. The same thing that the players is for women. You know, I wanted to do it in South Texas. I thought I had all the investors lined up. I thought it was good. The deal fell through. And, uh, you know, I, I presented it to the LPGA and it doesn't matter. I don't care if I design it myself and my architect design it, my architectural partner design it. I just feel like it, it needs to be designed by somebody. It needs to be out there. We had Lorena Ochoa came in and was part of our team and was going to help us design it. Um, it doesn't make any difference if I do it. I just think it needs to be, be done. I'd like to, you know, I'd like to see it. And it's not out there. You know, I've, I, the reason I wrote the book I wrote on golf swings was because I wanted to read it and it wasn't <laughs> out there. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, this isn't out there. It should be designed. It should be, should be there. And, uh, you know, um, I feel like that would be a great thing for women's golf, and I'd like to see it. But there, you know, there are a lot of things that, uh, I have a putting book that I have written, almost completed, massaging it, uh, but I, I need to get that in for publication. Uh, and, and again, I'm writing that book because I want to read it. Uh, and it doesn't really exist. I say it doesn't really exist because yeah. there is one book out there that was written, but it was written about 50, 60 years ago and it's no longer in print. You highly recommend this book, right? You've driven up the price through the roof? That book was $20 when I first started talking about it. I bought several of them and now it's something like $1,400. $1,400? Yeah, the last time I did a clinic and I told people about this book, Yeah. They Googled it and they were like, yeah, it's $1,400. And then I looked, it was 800, it was 1,200, it was 1,300. Yeah. But it wasn't 20. You gotta get them to reprint this yeah. thing. So I was, uh, there was a Corn Ferry Tour player here asked me to come out and spend the day with them. And I did, I was happy to do that. Uh, and I love doing that stuff, but you know what? Uh, and I was, I was like, look, I think this book would help your putting. And I said, I have three of them. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually went online and bought the, the putter that the guy used in that book and used to win the Masters too, um, and bought it on eBay. And the, the putter was cheaper than the book. Um, Wait, what's the name of this book for the record? The Secret of Holding Putts. The Secret uh, of Holding Horton Putts. Smith. And uh, anyway, I left that book for this fella. Just put it under my mat. He's got it. So, uh, but anyway, I'm. The, the great thing about that book is it comes closest to aggregating the greatest putting strokes of all time and what they have in common. Now that book doesn't exist. I've written it, but I haven't got it published yet. I'm about to clean it up and send it in and publish it. And uh, I think it needs to be out there because one, I, I wanted to read it, but two, most people write books about what they did when they putted well. And those are great and they're interesting and they're informative, but you know, to me, it's like, well, what did the best do and what did they have in common? And I think that's a better, better place to, to start at. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Brandel. Yeah, There's a lot, of, a lot of stories every week and a lot of, I don't know, I think about, well, it's interesting if a guy is at the top of the leaderboard and why is he there and why is he number one in the world? 
it's also interesting if a guy was there and then suddenly now he's not. That's right. Why is he not there? And, and I feel like you help us kind of tap into some of those stories and we, we turn you on when we're at major championships after we, well, I guess we're sickos. Maybe we're in the media center till yeah. 9.30 or 10 p.m. Go get some horrendous dinner, whatever's still available, and then go home and turn on live from Sean for the second time that night and yeah. uh, always enjoy it. So Well, same. I mean, we all benefit from the sort of the same thing. You know, I get up and read your work. I read everybody's work. I try to read it. It informs my opinion. And then, you know, I always say that when we go on the air, everything that could possibly be said about the golf has been said about it. So the hard part is trying to think of what can I say that hasn't been said. Uh, that's, you know, that's the part that's fun. All right, folks, Dylan, checking back in here. Thanks for making it this far. I hope you enjoyed a little bit, uh, learning a little bit more about Brandle. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Like you can, you can draw a line from there to here. Uh, anyway, there will be one more podcast with Brandle coming out Wednesday. So, uh, subscribe to the drop zone. It will pop up in your feed. Then there'll be some video of the interview available on golf.com written version. Plus, you know, all our usual good stuff on there. Thanks for listening. Love you guys. See you in a couple days.